Hi, and welcome to Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today, we're going to talk about India's response to the war in Ukraine and what it says about India's place in the world, Asian geopolitics, and some of the Ukraine war's global reverberations. India is not a member of the G7 nations, but India has been invited. And this comes on the heels of the West and India's differing stance on this Russian war on Ukraine. The United States and Europe have chosen to go the sanctions way, but India instead has chosen diplomacy. So the question, of course, is will New Delhi's cameo in Germany affect its relations with Moscow? So just last week, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi attended the G7 summit, along with leaders from Argentina, Indonesia, Senegal and South Africa. Since late February, when Russian forces crossed the Ukrainian border en masse, India's largely steered what it portrays as a neutral course on the war. It's abstained on UN votes condemning Russia's invasion. New Delhi refuses to blame Moscow explicitly for the crisis, even while emphasizing its respect for sovereignty and territorial integrity. Its positions prompted warm words from Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov when he was visiting the Indian capital last April. Our Western colleagues would like to uh, reduce any meaningful international issue to the crisis in Ukraine. Uh, you know our position. Uh, we do not hide anything and we appreciate that India is taking this situation in the entirety of facts, not just in a, in a one-sided way. So why has the world's largest democracy chosen, like many countries in the global south, to sit this one out? What does it say about India's foreign relations, Asian politics more broadly, and how the war is perceived in the non-Western world? I'm really delighted today to be joined by Shiv Shankar Menon, former Indian Foreign Secretary, National Security Advisor, and a Crisis Group trustee. Shankar is also the author of a widely claimed book, India and Asian Geopolitics, The Past and Present, which was published about a year ago. It's a book obviously about Asia, but its insights, uh, analysis and prescription are really global in scope. Shankar, welcome on. Thanks so much for joining today. Thank you, and thank you for having me. It's good of you to ask. So, Shankar, could we start then with that G7 meeting? Modi was there, as we heard, but, um, but if Western leaders hoped it might be an opportunity for the Indian Premier to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine more explicitly, that, uh, that didn't happen. I, I'm not sure that it was actually an effort that was designed to shift the Indian position on Ukraine, uh, because Indian prime ministers have attended G8, G7 meetings since 2005 as invitees, depending on what was being discussed. And I think it's been quite clear over the last few months where India stands on on the war in Ukraine, that it, it certainly doesn't approve of the invasion, but it it doesn't think that the continuation of the war is a is going to lead to any good result for anyone. And that, frankly, that both sides need to get to the table and, and find peace and find a peace which respects Ukraine's territorial integrity and sovereignty. So I think from an Indian point of view, you know, in the same week, Prime Minister Modi had just been to the BRICS summit with Putin, Xi Jinping, it was a virtual summit. Uh, but in the same seven days, he then went to the G7, met with them, and then visited uh, the UAE on his way back to India. So I think for India, this is part of being in touch with everyone, of working with everyone, of trying to further what India sees as the big issues of our day. First, obviously, is peace and security. I think there's no question. The Ukraine war brings it home to us every day. But there's also other big issues, the debt crisis in developing countries. The IMF now says that of 41 developing countries are at risk of debt default. There's a food crisis going on, thanks to food prices having gone through the roof. But this is not a, only a result of the Ukraine war. These are both crises that have been there for three or four years. We've been raising it in the G20. We raised it uh, at the G7 as well. And, of course, climate change on top of all this. So we have fundamental issues to discuss with our partners and it's been our practice as India to work with everyone to try and find something that works for for everyone as well. And so we'll come back to some of those crises that you talked about. Could we back up a little bit and talk about India's response to the war in Ukraine? I mean since what the Russian invasion in late February, India's abstained on a couple of the UN General Assembly votes 
It's distanced itself, like many governments across parts of the world, from the West's efforts to isolate Russia. How would you describe the motives behind the Indian response to the war? From an Indian point of view, there's been a war going on in the Ukraine for several years. I mean, Crimea was taken in 2014, but there's been a proxy war for a long time. And now it's become a state-to-state, a straightforward invasion by Russia into Ukraine in February. Uh, And we have consistently argued that all sides, whether it's the rest of Europe, West Europe, whether it's the Russians, whether it's primarily the Ukrainians, but the US, they all have interests in this. And these are interests that need to be sorted out across the table, not either by invasion or military means, and not by isolating one or the other or trying to destroy one or the other country involved in this. Because, frankly, none of those solutions are going to be long-lasting and permanent. And this is why we've stressed from the beginning, while we abstain on the resolutions, we've stressed that we don't think name-calling or sanctions is the way forward to solve the problem. But neither do we think an invasion is a solution to the problem. The way forward is to sit and adjust one's interests. And there are core interests here. After all, the eastern borders of Ukraine are less than 300 miles from Moscow. So missiles, NATO troops on Ukrainian soil would be seen as a threat by Moscow. But at the same time, the western borders of Ukraine are less than 100 miles from Vienna, from Prague, from Warsaw, 300 miles from Berlin. So they Vice versa, Russian troops and missiles in in Ukraine will be seen as a threat by the others. So there has to be some way of adjusting these interests around the table through negotiation. And that's really what we would would support. But isolating Russia, driving her economy into the dirt, or creating actually a highly militarized and polarized Europe, I don't see that contributing to a stable European security order. And that's what this is about, primarily, about a European security order which works for the Europeans. And what would you say to the argument which is felt, certainly in parts of Europe, the US felt very strongly that this is a major violation of international law, the gravest since the Iraq war, for example, a major violation of Ukraine's sovereignty, just as the G7 and NATO were meeting had these Russian missile strikes killed a lot of civilians. What do you make of the argument you know, that, again, you very deeply felt in Western capitals? This is a global challenge, and this is not just about European security. This sort of violation of international law matters more broadly and very difficult to compromise when that's, the, that's what's sitting at the other side of the table. Well, let me deal with them one by one. Moral outrage. All sides claim moral outrage and normally use that to motivate their own population and to justify what they're doing. And in post-colonial societies like India, frankly, listening to moral outrage from countries which have a history, uh, it doesn't go down very well. So forgive me if you find cynicism. And this is not just in India. If you look at the number of countries who chose not to sign on to sanctions, or who chose one way or the other to maintain links with Russia. Uh, So this is not just a purely Indian phenomenon. But moral outrage, I'm not sure, is quite justifies anything. In fact, the danger with moral outrage taken to an extreme is that it prevents you from arriving at, at reasonable solutions which accommodate various interests. Legality? Yes, it's illegal, but it's not the first illegal act. I mean, each one thinks everybody else is the most illegal and the most criminal. Uh, But I'm sorry, for an objective observer, legality has been in short supply in international relations for some time. Uh, And frankly, look how few cases of invasions, of sanctions, of actions against other states have been taken to the Security Council, which ultimately could legalize these in the last few years. In fact, it's getting less and less if you look at the numbers. Uh, We have a practical problem in the Ukraine right now, which it does have global effects. It has huge effects on energy prices, oil, gas, on food prices. It, It accentuates the economic hardship that the global economy is threatening to face us all with. Uh, And certainly, yes, but it's not a challenge to the global order, by the way. 
it's a challenge to the European order. It doesn't change the balance of power in Asia, in the Indo-Pacific, on the Eurasian continent. And frankly, because to my mind, when you look at the world today, for some time now, we have been in a world between orders. This is not a very orderly or just world that we're living in. You could say we had a bipolar world order in the Cold War. You could say that then morphed into a unipolar moment when the U.S. was the sole superpower, and frankly still is the sole superpower. There is no other power which has the reach across the world. As in the only power that's able to project militarily between continents. Militarily, wherever she wants across the globe, whenever she wants to. And no, there is no other power who can, who can do that. But I, as I've argued for some years, from about 20, 2008, 2012 maybe uh, onwards, I mean, you can date it differently. We are really between orders. We, the old post-World War II order is not working. It's not delivering. And this is why when you look around you today, all the great powers are revisionists. Every one of them is a revisionist power. This is a very strange situation. As a result, we've made our multilateral institutions very weak and ineffective. I mean, look at the response of the multilateral system to COVID. Pathetic. So for me, this is a situation, that's where the real danger comes. Because it's a situation without order, without agreement between the powers, on how the world runs, on the norms that we should be following, even on the legality which we claim to follow. But frankly, it's hard to think of a power who cannot be accused of hypocrisy. How would you define the U.S. as revisionist? Well, they're building back better. What is that? That's changing today's world to go back to something they regard as better. That's revisionism. And when you talk of free and open Indo-Pacific, for instance, what you're implying is that it's not free and open today, and we need to work to make it free and open. There's a whole host of things. I mean, the U.S. has changed position on many things, on the WTO, on international trade. And so part of the Indian response to Ukraine, as you say, has been informed by the Indian perspective on the war. But it, it's also presumably been informed to some degree by India's relations with, with Moscow. But it also serves India's interests. For India, it's an impossible choice between uh, the West on the one hand, the US certainly, and Russia and other continental powers in Asia on the other. You know, my sort of summary is that Russia is a desirable partner. Russia is willing to do things with India on the defense side, for instance, which the U.S. and other partners are not. But the U.S. and the West is an essential partner if we are to transform India, whether in terms of technology, in terms of markets, in terms of, you know, other forms of assistance. I and mean, frankly, it's the West we work with. And our best years have been when we turned and transformed that relationship with the U.S. in the last two decades and a half. And those have really been the years when India has managed to eliminate the most poverty, to actually grow fastest and to transform herself. So the West is an essential partner, but to have to choose between them. In security terms, India is both a maritime power and a continental power in Eurasia. And quite frankly, on land in Eurasia, our biggest security challenge, of course, is China, with whom we have a very complicated and difficult relationship. But on land, in Eurasia, the U.S. is absent. So we work with who we can. Who do we work with? We have to work with Russia. We have to work with Iran. Now, this might not be popular in the U.S. But when it comes to the Indo-Pacific, when it comes to maritime Asia, we do things with the U.S., which we've never done with any other power. We have interoperability to a degree between our armed forces to a degree that we've never had before with anyone. And uh, frankly, we've transformed that relationship with the U.S., and it's critical to us. So for us, uh, when it's presented as a choice, we recoil because we have no other way of reconciling our various interests. Though this uh, neutrality, as, as India portrays it, has obviously come in for some criticism in, in Western capitals, disappointment that, uh, that a U.S. partner, a country with which Washington has you know, these important relations, isn't prepared to more explicitly condemn 
Russia's invasion? I, I think we need to distinguish here between those who are actually tasked with running governments, who I think are quite realistic about this and always have been, have always understood. I mean, this is not a new phenomenon. This was true when the George W. Bush administration had sanctions on Iran, for instance. I've always found that those who face practical political problems of governance are normally quite understanding. That is not the case in public commentary, in the media. It's also not always the case among legislators, where, as you said, emotion runs high, especially when it's a war, people are dying, you see refugees, 7 million refugees, no small number. Uh, so, you know, in places like Congress, like the European Parliament, one expects a slightly different and less, let's say, realistic response. But I do want to underline one thing. In practice, everybody, no matter what their public rhetoric and positioning might be, whether it's India, whether it's China, we've all actually been respecting sanctions on Russia. Nothing we've done actually contradicts the sanctions. We're not the only ones buying oil from Russia. So is Europe, and probably buying much more than we are. And that's because, as I said, the West is an essential partner, and there's no way that we want to risk secondary sanctions. We have big interests at stake here. So I think people understand that we are following our interests as we see them. They will try and persuade us of why we should be working maybe more closely with them and... That's legitimate. That's politics. We will try and persuade them of the way we see it, and then we'll find a way forward together. We're not allies, but we're partners, is the way I would describe it. You mentioned a couple of times India's relations with China. China's rise will sort of define Asian geopolitics in some way, global geopolitics over the, the foreseeable future. And India sort of has this, you know, as, as you said, there's been over the last few years, these tensions mounting over the, uh, the line of actual control, the, the, the border in the, in the Himalayas with deadly clashes over the past few years. At the same time, trade with China has never been higher, right? I mean, what, 2020, 2021, China is now India's top trading partner. Was. The U.S. has overtaken them again. They're neck and neck, actually. I mean, it's every other year <laughs> for the last three years. But still this interesting dynamic, which, you know, in some ways defines some other countries' relationships as well, where you have this you know, enormous amount of trade and the shared interests of keeping that, that trade going. And yet politically, in the case of China and India, you know, along the border in the Himalayas, these real tensions that have you know, caused some real damage to the relationship over the past few years. How would you see that combination? I think you're absolutely right in drawing attention to both extremes. We now have a, a relationship which actually spans a much larger part of that spectrum between conflict and, and true peace and cooperation. It seems to me we have the same issue in our relationship with China that the U.S. has. I mean, China's the U.S.'s largest trading partner. But at the same time, we do have a series of strategic interests which seem to be in opposition. And in our case, we actually have a world's largest boundary dispute, and we had debts on the border in 2020. So political relations today are really in the deep freeze. But the economic relationship goes on and continues. And we have to see how we're going to try and manage this. I've been arguing for some time that we need a proper strategic dialogue with the Chinese, where we look at our core interests, uh, both sides, and see where they actually uh, can accommodate each other, where they rub up against each other, and how do we manage those differences and find ways to do this, which we did quite successfully, managing. I'm not settling it, but managing it for about 30 years. When we kept the peace, the border stayed roughly where it was. Nothing much changed. And we developed the trading relationship that now surprises us with its numbers. So uh, it's going to be this mix of cooperation, competition, and it is difficult. And I think it's been made more difficult by the very rapidly shifting balance of power in the Asia-Pacific by the fact that domestic politics in India, in China, have got complicated by COVID, by an economic downturn, 
and the global economic downturn, but also domestically, uh, and where, frankly, the social contract is being renegotiated in both societies in, in very fundamental ways. You can see it in our politics. You can see it in Chinese politics as well. They're heading towards a party congress, which is always a sensitive time. So there are so many moving parts now which affect that relationship. And I think actually the domestic politics has a much greater role in India-China relations today than maybe it did earlier. Makes it much more difficult, therefore, to manage this mixture of competition, cooperation, all at the same time. And with some pretty explosive disputes, after all, at a time where the sense of nationalism is running high in both societies, uh, a boundary dispute, these things become very, very sensitive and much harder to deal with. So, so my own hope is that we show enough sense, both of us, to sit across the table and, and see how we, we deal with it. And I wouldn't set, you know, very grand goals of settling everything or finding a, a way out. I would actually think that the best thing to do is to see how we manage it so that we can then move towards settling some of our differences. Uh, but I don't think either the international context or the domestic politics today supports very much more than that in both countries. I'd like to come to relations with the US and with the West in, in a moment. But perhaps, Shankar, before we do, we could just talk very briefly about Pakistan, which is to some degree, part of the relationship with China, with which Pakistan has has close relations. So on the one hand, uh, there have been now uh, sort of back-channel talks over uh, recent months with Pakistan, certainly a step forward, an agreement to respect the 2003 ceasefire along the other line of control, the line of control uh, in, in Kashmir. At the same time, the situation in Kashmir itself has become sort of increasingly desperate. The, the BJP, the ruling party, has taken really quite a hardline nationalist position, so stripped uh, Jammu Kashmir of its special status, uh, revoked other parts of its autonomy. I mean, I think India administered Kashmir is still under lockdown sort of for, for, for the past couple of years. Internet phone service is intermittently cut off and, and many people detained, including the political leaders who are nominally pro-India. So you've had this sort of rise in, in militancy, which New Delhi blames on, on Pakistan, but, you know, for good reason, given the, the track record of Pakistan, but appears at the moment to be mostly homegrown to Kashmir. Given the situation in Kashmir, is there any hope that the back channel talks sort of lead to something that's more permanent between India and Pakistan? Well, my own sense is that Pakistan itself is going through an internal crisis of its own. It has a political crisis, but more than that, it has a very serious economic crisis. And it can't repay its debts, and, you know, it's, it's talking to the IMF. And the kind of steps that the IMF would expect, which make economic sense, don't make political sense, especially not to a government which faces an election. Right, a dilemma, sort of economic reforms that are politically painful, potentially even destabilizing, a, a dilemma that quite a few countries are facing at the moment. Quite a few. And the strange thing is how many countries around India. We've seen five governments change around us in the last year. Myanmar through a coup, Nepal, uh, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Maldives, you know. And we've seen this incipient debt crisis that we were talking about. It's Sri Lanka's defaulted already, uh, also is talking to the IMF. But if you look at the economic, the political condition of our immediate neighborhood in the subcontinent, it's not good. And it's hard to see this kind of domestic politics, very divided and economic crisis, being conducive to anything grand like a big India-Pakistan settlement. But it also induced some some reason. I mean, it helps to concentrate the mind. After all this, when we decided to resume the and implement the ceasefire of 2003, uh, it's held for the last year or so. And both sides have respected it because they have other more important burning fires to deal with. It's not the best reason, but at least... You know, for whatever motive, you're doing the right thing. Uh, militancy is an industry in Pakistan. I mean, it's, it's clear that that will go on. In fact, what happened in Afghanistan, the Taliban's coming to power, has actually strengthened 
militancy in Pakistan itself. In fact, the Pakistan Air Force actually was bombing TTP camps in Afghanistan last month uh, across the border. So you've seen a general uptick in militancy. My worry, though, is that there is a vested interest in a managed level of hostility between India and Pakistan for their own political survival, for to cater to their base, or in the case of the Pakistan army, an institutional interest to justify their role in Pakistan's politics and economy and their control of these things. Not that it gets out of hand. I'm not saying this is dangerous. No. But but some managed level of hostility is useful for the Pakistan army to justify why it's hold in Pakistan. So you, you have this strange situation where they, it, it could be argued that you've reached a different equilibrium in the last year with Pakistan, where the ceasefire is respected, where you have back-channel talks and links between various people who speak with authority on both sides, and they manage to keep the relationship within certain bounds. But it's still primarily a hostile relationship. But that seems to work for people domestically to consolidate their base and their power at home. So that's India's relations with Russia, China, the troubled relations with Pakistan. Shankar, before going back to Ukraine, could we talk a little bit about another component of India's uh, sort of Asia policy, uh, Asia foreign relations, which is its participation in the Quad, this quadrilateral security dialogue with Australia, Japan and the US? Primarily, it, it started, of course, spontaneously as a response to the tsunami in 2004, December, when these were the four navies who actually responded. Were there. The Indian Navy was the first on the spot in Indonesia and the others turned up as well. And starting from that, from that dialogue, we then started the, a formal dialogue between states, uh, in 2007, 2008, uh, nine. I think the Australians got a bit nervous. And, uh, when the Obama administration came, they also thought that they could maybe do more with the Chinese. So for whatever reason, it, it sort of petered out, but, what we're seeing now is Quad 2. And uh, primarily what it does is it tries to work with others to do three things. One is provide some global public goods in the Indo-Pacific, in maritime Asia. Things like uh, responding to the vaccine crisis and so on. Or making supply chains resilient after covid but also to see what we can do to enhance maritime security, whether it's in terms of maritime domain awareness or whether it's in terms of other things that we can do to ensure free, safe, secure navigation. Because these waters are critical to all our economies and to the world economy. Something like 38% of the world's cargo goes through the South China Sea. Over 70% of the world's traded oil goes through the Indian Ocean. So that's, I think, the second part of it. The third part of it, I think, in the more recent summits, I think their levels of ambition have grown also. But I, what I find interesting is that it, it's not just the Quad. It's the Quad working with others in the region because it's not the Quad who are going to do everything on their own. And I think that part of it, for me, is the useful part. Because working with the members of ASEAN, with Indonesia, with, with Vietnam, with South Korea, with the others, to see what we can do uh, to improve the situation in the region. Shankar, this was very diplomatically put, but isn't, isn't it mostly about uh, managing China? Uh, no longer. I mean, that's, you know, that might have been the initial impetus. And the Chinese reaction is interesting. To begin with, they said, oh, it's just froth on the ocean or foam on the sea, or words to that effect. We don't, you know, they dismissed it. Now suddenly it, they say it's becoming a nation NATO, it's really dangerous, and it couldn't have helped that the NATO summit this week in Madrid was attended for the first time by Japan, Australia, New Zealand, and South Korea. And the fact is that, yes, the Asia-Pacific is a dangerous place because there are so many security dilemmas across the region. 
between Japan and China, India and China, but it's also India and Pakistan, and there's also other other problems in the region. Quad has not stepped into those kinds of political waters yet, has been very careful, actually, in what it's said and done. In fact, the Quad would be useful if it did not set itself up as the anti-China grouping. In fact, it should actually be out there pushing for what it considers valuable. Things like, as I said, these are global public goods, maritime security or, you know, vaccines for COVID and working on the new strains or resilient supply chains. These are not anti-China. In fact, frankly, I don't see how China can object to that. Well, vaccine distribution, that that you could understand, is a global public good. It works in everybody's interest. But maritime security... Well, the difference between maritime and continental is that continental land belongs to you or me, right? Continental security is zero-sum, as you see in Ukraine. Uh, Maritime security is positive-sum. If the seas are safe, everybody gets to use them. Everybody gets to trade. If you trade, everybody benefits. It's not zero-sum. You can't look at the seas... And I think there is a fundamental difference there. If you're guaranteeing freedom of navigation and clearing the waters, as we did off Malacca, for instance, when we cleared it of piracy in the 90s and early noughts, or when we did the same off the Horn of Africa, the Gulf of Aden, uh, and everybody benefited, not just those who went in and cleared it or whose navies actually participated. So... There is a distinction there. And sorry to push again on this, but I mean, one thing is is ridding the Horn of Africa of pirates, right? But another is the South China Sea, for example, where you have these different sovereignty claims, ASEAN countries disagreeing with China on, on where the maritime borders lie. Well, you know, the, but I think the problem there is because China has historically been a continental power, and for the first time in history is trying to make the shift to being a maritime power, and is dependent on the sea today for her energy, her food, her trade, etc. She looks at the South China Sea as territory in zero-sum terms. And that's part of the problem. And she's also trying to control it militarily from land, building islands, building land, trying to control it by placing missiles, fighter aircraft, uh, artillery and so on, on these new pieces of land. So still looking at it, as territorial land in a territorial fashion rather than as the high seas. And this is why she's not willing to accept what the tribunal says under the international law when the Philippines took a case to to the arbitration tribunal in, in 2016. The judgment is quite clear. Much of what China is saying or doing is illegal. But China has her own interpretation of of the law, which seems to suit her. But as I said, the core of the problem there is different. But that sea, South China Sea, as I said, is important to all of us. It's important to Japan, it's important to Korea, it's important to us, to, to the US, to and to all the other countries, as you said, all the ASEAN countries. Many of them have their own claims, their own views of where the boundaries are and what law should apply. And I don't think that the Quad is going to solve it, but the Quad, I think, offers an alternative view to the countries, and then we'll find a way of trying to settle it among ourselves, whether it's through the ARF, the ASEAN Regional Forum, or, you know, whether ASEAN provides a place to do it, or whether we do it through the East Asia Summit. There are enough institutions where you could do this if the states are willing to to actually sit down and negotiate. So I'd like to end by talking a little bit about Russia's war in Ukraine and the potential geopolitical implications of it, and uh, in particular, the implications for Western countries' relationship with other parts of the world. And you talked right at the beginning about the perceptions in parts of the world and how those contrasted with the perceptions in European capitals. It seems that Western leaders at the moment are are sort of making a calculation with the sanctions in particular and the efforts to isolate Russia. The danger that Russia poses to European security, the danger that it uh, sees successes in Ukraine as a launching pad for gobbling up more territory, to put it very bluntly, whether that's in Georgia, whether it's more of Ukraine, whether it's elsewhere. The threat that Russia poses 
that that has to be somehow contained. And they see sanctions as a way of, of doing that, of reducing Russia's ability to, to, to sort of wage more aggressive wars. And that the potential costs of the sanctions, these are worth risking because of the imperative of, of containing Russia. That calculation is obviously viewed very differently in different parts of the world. So I, I don't know whether you want to say a little bit about how how sort of India or how you you see other capitals around the world viewing the sanctions in particular as, as this sort of central pillar of Western policy? I can only speak for myself. And, and by judging by how countries have reacted in practice, I think most countries feel a certain disquiet about this. They're not sure this is the right way to go. Because the second-order effects of these sanctions... Yes, they will weaken Russia, and it will be a much diminished Russia which emerges from this, no matter how it ends. There's no question about that. But the second-order effects are really very strongly felt elsewhere, and much more strongly than the effects of uh, a dysfunctional European order, food prices, energy prices, fertilizer prices. I mean, these are... These are being added on top of an ongoing crisis, economic crisis, in the developing countries. Uh, and this is serious. But there's another second-order effect, which for me is as worrying. Non-proliferation regime is fraying. Whether we like it or not, the general impression is that all these promises, the Budapest Memorandum that were made to Ukraine when she gave up her nuclear weapons, they're all scraps of paper. These were red lines drawn in the sand. Kim Jong-un is not going to give up his nuclear weapons after he's seen what happened in Libya, what happened here in the Ukraine and other places. Uh, and I think there's a general recalculation. I mean, you look at the Middle East, everybody is hedging, whether it's Saudi, UAE, with very little prospect of the US-Iran nuclear deal. And even if it were to come through, I don't think the hedging will stop. Uh, so Northeast Asia, West Asia, I mean, we, I think we have a real problem here where the existing or the old non-proliferation regime is really fraying. Uh, so for many of us, the cost of sanctions is very, very high. And they're not likely to lead to any good result. I mean, a diminished, unhappy Russia is hardly going to be a factor of stability in the European order. So I don't see how sanctions lead to a good outcome. And for me, the measure here has to be outcomes, not moral satisfaction. You need to look at the clear outcomes. What do you do for European order? What do you do for the economic crisis that we have, food, fertilizer, etc.? What do you do for the non-proliferation regime? Those are the things we should be looking at, at the de debt crisis in developing countries, at climate crisis. These are the things we should be doing, not wasting our time on, on a sanctions regime which is driven by political considerations, not by economic, because after all, Europe is paying a cost for these sanctions. And that's a big shift if politics is in command, not markets, not and security or violence, in other words, is in command rather than uh, welfare or well-being. Then you have a fundamental problem here. So what I'm trying to say is that I don't see how sanctions are a very good tool. And I don't think the historical record shows that either. I mean, they actually strengthen the regimes they're targeted at, hurt the people in those countries. We've seen that in Iran. We saw it in China in the 50s, 60s. We've seen it in India in the past as well. So it's quite difficult to tease apart what has caused the, the hike in prices of food fuel fertilizers and as you say it comes on top of the supply chain uh, problems related to the pandemic it comes on top of a, an already strained global market and you know a lot of it is related to the way the market interprets things the war the potential impact of sanctions and you know clearly some of it is is about market jitters but clearly it's not just the sanctions right i mean first you could say that russia invaded having been warned that doing so would attract western sanctions but even beyond that clearly part of the problem has been Russia's blockade of Black Sea ports, its refusal to allow Ukrainian grain out, it's bombed some Ukrainian grain storage, it's stolen Ukrainian grain. And sure, Ukrainians have mined their ports, but they've done that because they've been invaded and they fear a, a Russian offensive on Odessa, for example. 
And while sanctions have played a role, you know, they made it more difficult for people to purchase Russian grain and fertilizer, even if those commodities aren't themselves sanctioned. It's hard not to see Russia as primarily responsible or you know, at the very least sharing much of the blame. So, Shankar, what would you say to the argument that if much of the world, especially a big influential country like India, is sort of sitting it out and in fact, some countries often seem rhetorically to be blaming the West, sort of almost more than Russia. Maybe somehow that's easier. Isn't that going to make it harder to get President Putin to compromise, allow black seaports to open, for example? And I mean, you could even make that case not just about the sanctions. You can make it more broadly, too, that if India supports Ukraine's territorial integrity, its sovereignty, then why not condemn Russia for violating that, for biting off a piece of Ukraine, for trying to topple its its elected government. I mean, in some ways, what does the West's legacy in Iraq or its track record over the past 30 years, even its colonial legacy, I mean, why bring all the understandable upset about that to a crisis that is mostly about Ukrainian suffering, Russia's, Russia's aggression? Now, of course, as you say, part of India's response is about Indian interests. You know, it's not just about all that stuff. But in some ways, isn't Russia getting a pass from much of the world on this? and unjustifiably so, and in, and in a way that makes the crisis actually harder to resolve? Well, let me... Two questions, then. Ineffective sanctions are even worse because they'll convince Putin that, that he has the world on his side, that most of the world is going to sit this out. And that's what we're seeing. I mean, it's not going to change Russian behavior. And what we're seeing today is actually ineffective sanctions. I mean, the ruble is doing well. Yes, under a very tight currency control regime, popular support seems to be there for whatever reason, because of what they're being fed, propaganda, etc. But even effective sanctions, do we really think it's going to create good outcomes? But this is not a time when we're in crisis. This is not a time to fix responsibility for how much of the food shortage or food prices is because of what Russia has done. I mean, there are enough people trying to fix that. I mean, the Turks were talking to, to the Russians, to President Putin. I think the Indonesian president, who is now the head of the G20, is in Moscow today talking to him about the same thing, lifting the blockade and allowing Ukrainian grain and some Russian grain out. There are people trying to fix these individual problems. But that will then be seen as, oh, sanctions busting. So what's the point of sanctions which are ineffective, which actually only strengthen uh, Russia's inclination to continue along this course, and which create bad outcomes for everyone else? I mean, we're not here to prove a point. We're not here to affix responsibility, to fix the past. If we were, this world would be a complete mess if we were settling historical scores here. Frankly, we need to look at outcomes and what we need at the end of this process to improve people's lives. And when, as I said, it smacks in post-colonial societies of hypocrisy, then, you know, you won't get much support for the argument that, oh, this is all his fault and therefore we need to do something about it. It's a never-ending argument. And frankly, I think it's unproductive and actually dangerous because it arouses the kinds of political emotions which you don't want. You want to deal rationally with the situation we have and to bring peace. And you talked earlier, Shankar, about the fact that we're between orders, that we're sort of moving from one, as you said, unipolar moment, a US-led order, to something that's different. And it's not yet clear what that is going to look like. But it seems reasonable to say that it's going to be defined in large part by China's rise. Some of the things we talked about earlier, how the US and Asian powers, the rest of the world respond to that. But it's also going to be shaped in some way by the West's relationship with countries across the rest of the world. How much do you see the West's response to Ukraine as a sort of potentially defining moment that the West's response to the war, to the commodities crisis coming as it has after sort of lots of complaints about the inequity of vaccine distribution, about climate funding, the amount given to countries that have to adapt to climate change, that are going to feel its worst effects, despite not having really contributed towards it. How sort of consequential, in other words, is, is, is the current moment, is what's happening now as a result of the Ukraine war? 
you know, in terms of the way it's going to shape those relationships between Western capitals and capitals across the global south? I think it really matters for the future. Because if the rest of the world thinks that the West is now entirely consumed by its own issues and no longer looks at issues from a global point of view, then yes, it will have effects on the order that emerges. Or even if no new order emerges and we go back into what historically we were in multiverses, which you know, in regional blocks which took care of themselves and traded with each other, but weren't part of each other's political or security calculus. So whichever way it goes, it's it does matter. And unfortunately, more and more people, I think, outside the West are drawing the conclusion that the West is less interested in the world. I mean, the global institutions that form the basis of the previous order today are all in crisis whether it's the UN, whether it's multilateral agencies, whether it's the WTO. Well, you know, it's hard to find any of these institutions. International law, I mean, it's, you know, yes, there's lip service, but we don't see it being practiced. So if the sense is that the West has its own concerns and is not bothered with the rest anymore, which I think is going to spread and is spreading today, then I don't think we're in for a very good future, unfortunately. Because the issues we face are global issues. These are global challenges. Climate, debt crisis, global economy. We are a globalized economy, whether we like it or not. And we can't just each build back our own economies and think we'll do it all in a self-reliant way in today's world. It's just impossible. You can't cut people out either. So I, I am worried by what you you suggested might be happening. But, you know, humanity has a a habit of surprising you on the upside. (laughs) It's, uh, and they've done it. So, but of course, the histories only tell you all the crises and the wars and the terrible parts. But overall, that more people are living longer, better, healthier lives today than ever before in history. And that would normally be a very good place to, to, to end. But actually, Shankar, I want to end on, on one other question, if it's OK. I mean, we've talked, obviously, about India's foreign relations, which, you know, in some ways, they're this balancing act. There's the ties to Russia that we talked about, the strong economic relationship with China, but serious political disputes, all the while the importance of relations with, with Western capitals, with the U.S., so you have India as you know a leading voice in sort of a, a reinvigorated non-aligned group, but you also have it as part of the BRICS. Uh, it's also part of the Quad, like we talked about, and it has these deepening relations with the US and attending G7 meetings, all set in this sort of transition that you talked about away from a unipolar Western-led order towards something new. So this sort of balancing act, this dilemma, we've talked about it with other countries on the show before, Turkey in particular, Though maybe in some ways Erdogan always seems to turn major power friction disadvantage rather than disadvantage. But generally, it's not an easy balance for countries to strike. So maybe we could end with some of your sort of reflections on how the war in Ukraine has has upset or potentially impacts its balancing acts that countries like India are performing between big powers. I mean, India itself is becoming a big power, but between existing big powers that are sort of increasingly at loggerheads. It's interesting because, for me, the best analogy is the Korean War. When the Korean War broke out in June 1950, we condemned the invasion. We we actually sent troops and, and, and as a medical mission with the UN forces. That time, you saw the world respond through the institutions that had been set up, the international institutions, through the UN. You had it uniting for peace. And... India suggested a set of ideas for a solution, for a way forward. And we were accused by both sides of being immoral, of being, of being totally unrealistic. Uh, but in 1953, Stalin died, Eisenhower got elected, became president. And by the middle of that year, 
Each of the things that India had suggested in August 1950 formed the basis of the Korean settlement or armistice, return of prisoners of war, etc., etc. We're used to this. We're used to being in a difficult situation where both sides' emotions run high and they will yell at us when we try and be objective and try and suggest a way forward that works for both sides not just for one side, because that's what diplomacy is about. It's not about winning at the table. It's about making sure that your, well, interlocutor, adversary, whoever, also has enough when he leaves the table to have an interest in implementing those agreements. And so for me, that's something we have done consistently. And we're used to being yelled at by both sides. Uh, It's getting harder. There's no question in today's world. And Ukraine doesn't make it any easier. But I I don't think we will change what we do because I think it serves India's interest. Because our primary interest is in transforming India. And for that, we need a peaceful environment and we need an enabling environment outside. And things like Ukraine make that much more difficult. Franka, thank you so much for joining me today. It's really been a, a privilege to talk to you. Thank you, Richard. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed that. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. We have transcripts for our shows, so if you want a reference, check up on anything you've heard. You can also find those on our website. Thanks to our producers, Sam Bendick, Kevin Murphy, Finn Johnson, Alex Figorski. And thanks, of course, to all of you, to all our listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in. You can get in touch directly with me at crisisgroup.org or you can write to podcasts at crisisgroup.org if you have any suggestions or comments. Uh, if you like the show, please do give us a positive rating or review. This week, sorry we've been a little bit late getting this one out. I was travelling last week. This is actually our penultimate show of the season. This has been our season two. So later this week, I hope to bring you our last episode a summer special and we will go back to the Ukraine war but then I'll also be chatting to Crisis Group's president and CEO Comfort Eero and we'll be reflecting back a little bit on on certainly the past six months maybe even on the the whole season so I very much hope that you'll all tune in for that one.